Hi, you're listening to Doth Protest Too Much, podcast discussions on Protestant historical theology. I'm your host, Reverend Andrew Christensen, an Episcopal priest and school chaplain that serves in the Episcopal Diocese of Western Louisiana. What is historical theology? Well, it's the story of the church, and not merely church history, but the beliefs and theology of Christianity as they, these developed over time. Sometimes this includes the stories of people who shaped Christian thought, as well as the events that had significant impact on them. This podcast brings on a variety of guests. They include scholars who have contributed to the study of different church history and theology topics, and also ministers and others who possess an area of knowledge or firsthand experience in the topics that we discuss. What do we mean by Protestant? Well, as an Episcopal priest and theologian, Paul Zoll once put in an article titled, For First Things, Things That Remain. What I mean by Protestant, Reverend Zoll says, I mean a version of Christianity that recognizes no curtain or veil between God and man, save my sin and God's perfect goodness. By Protestant, I mean a version of Christianity that focuses utterly on the unmediated need of us and the unmediated response of God. By Protestant, I mean an impatience with anything that is secondary to this, unquote. I'll add to this that it's important to note that Christianity is both Protestant and Catholic. Protestantism, as it arose in the 16th century, is a particular expression of that Catholicity. Even Reverend Zoll says in the very article I quoted from a moment ago that the term Catholic refers to, quote, the historically continuous Orthodox society of Christian believers, unquote. We are not necessarily a pro-Protestant podcast in the sense of being anti-Roman Catholic or anti-any other church body not considered Protestant, like Eastern Orthodoxy, for instance. In fact, some of our guests and listeners come from those very traditions. We are ecumenical and not partisan. Rather, our focus on this podcast is to particularly explore the Reformation era and the ecclesial bodies that descend from the Reformation tradition, whether Lutheran, Reformed, my own tradition of Anglicanism, or even later revivalist Christian movements in North America. From the Reformation to modern theology, the recent history of the Church proves over and over to be fascinating. Whether it's the scholastic era of Protestant orthodoxy, the intra-Protestant debates over the theological differences between the different reformers, the various spiritual renewal movements like Pietism and Wesleyanism, or the responses and reactions within Protestantism to the Enlightenment, and their European continental philosophy and intellectual movements. I envision this podcast to be a forum that surveys and explores all these topics and more from the last 500 years of church history and brings the discussion to listeners worldwide. And now, on to our show. And thank you for tuning in to another episode of Doth Protest Too Much. This is a podcast on history and theology in the Protestant tradition. We are grateful for your listenership. This podcast can be listened to through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a variety of other music and podcast streaming providers. Also, the episodes are now up on YouTube as well. So if you are, and if you are listening to, uh, to us through Apple Podcasts, uh, we greatly appreciate uh, you giving us review, five stars, or if you want to give a one star, we respect all opinions. 
<laughs> so, uh, and if you also, if you have, and I haven't really plugged this into past episodes, but if you have further questions about topics that are discussed on this podcast, or maybe have interest in something you'd like discussed or a guest you'd like to possibly hear in the podcast, please get a hold of me at doth prost doth sorry doth protest too much podcast at gmail.com. So today is not an ordinary episode. We have Isaac from Miserable Offenders for our miserable mashup episode. Miserable Offenders is another podcast similar in nature to ours in some respects, uh, though I'd say Miserable Offenders really zeroes in on the Anglican tradition as well as the the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, Very intensely, I would say. I enjoy listening uh, to them. And we have, of course, Isaac from Miserable Offenders. He's one of the co-hosts. He co-hosts along with Andrew and Jesse on that show. They have fascinating discussions. Um, So Jesse is a uh, rector, or sorry, uh, Isaac is a rector of All Saints Anglican in San Antonio. He's the Archdeacon of Liturgy at Conam, which we joked that it sounded like a movie from the 90s with Nicolas Cage, but that's Con Air. <laughs> so Con Am. Explain what Con Am is. Give us a little, uh, give us a, tell us what Con Am is. Sure. So uh, Con Am stands for the Church of Nigeria North American Mission. And um, once upon a time, we were, uh, we were under the umbrella of uh, Cana, the, the convocation of Anglicans in North America. But um, the, uh, the the church in Nigeria decided to kind of restructure um, things very recently. Actually, this we've only been under the new name and the new kind of business structure. Everything's the same ecclesiastically, but kind of in terms of American uh, uh, North American um, corporation law type stuff. And I, I was actually just on a on a Zoom call with um, uh, the church in Nigeria. Um, primate and a bunch of bishops this morning, I was not aware how extensive the Church of Nigeria is in terms of its international missions. We had folks that were um, active mission missionaries in London, Philippines, Qatar, um, you know, all over the world. And I, I was just surprised at how, uh, how that is. I thought it was just us in the home province, but um, shows what I know. It's a big world out there, and um, like I was like I was telling Isaac before the show, um, you know, but part of, not not totally, but uh, part of what we like to do on the podcast, I brought on people from all these denominations. We had a Missouri Synod scholar, uh, Jack Kilcrease, who's my doctor father, actually, and we'll have him again uh, in a few episodes. But um, we try to b- bring together Christians of all stripes, especially Reformation Christians of all stripes, and. Um, we, uh, our last episode, we had Zach Neubauer, who's president of, uh, EFAC, which is of course, evangelical, uh, evangelical fellowship in the Anglican communion, the USA chapter. And they intentionally, uh, structure their board to have half Episcopal church, half Anglican church in North America. And, uh, and there's, there's lots of, it's a big world out there. There's lots of connections. Uh, my, where I serve, we have a partnership with ministries in Uganda where Isaac, uh, serves. They have partnerships with ministries in Nigeria. And so, um, 
uh, from both the Episcopal Church and other Anglican bodies in North America. Um, there is still lots of lively, vibrant uh, mission for the gospel, I would say, going on. So uh, thank you, Isaac, for being here. So how, how have you been, man? How was, so how is, you're in Texas. How has it been, the, like, how was last week? Yes. <clears throat> oh, it was absolutely nuts. Um, we had the worst uh, winter storm that I believe we've ever experienced in this part of Texas. And um, unfortunately, we were not ready for it. <laughs> so, um, you know, oh, just all across the state, but including, you know, including here in San Antonio, folks were without power. Um, some folks were without water. We're talking for days. Um, my family and I were real blessed that that uh, everything, nothing, nothing got shut off for us. We, I don't know how we, how that happened, but uh, we 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 managed just to kind of a uh, you know keep warm, snowed in, but but we kept warm, so that was good. And we're just now here in this city, anyway, getting to where um, uh, groceries are available again, kind of in 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 normal situations. And um, I believe everybody now has power and water. I know everybody has power. Um, and I think everybody has water now. So it's, yeah, it was, it was a crazy week. And then, you know, fast forward just to today and it's in the seventies. So <laughs> that's, oh, that's it's Texas so story. weird, isn't it? We were like, in, <laughs> I don't know if it was the seventies, but it was at least the sixties that we were in today and the same type of thing. Well, I know yeah. not the same type of thing. Texas experienced it more drastically, but, um, so my prayers are with y'all and I'm, I'm glad that people have made it out one way or another uh, from that. Um, yeah, they're around here in Shreveport, Louisiana, which we're only 10 miles from Texas, uh, the East Texas, you know, border. Uh, you know, well, we had a busted pipe here at home and, um, had to have the water mm. shut off and, but a lot, everyone had a trickle of water, you know, uh, for days and, and people were like rejoicing. It was like, even though it's Lent, people were singing Handel's Hallelujah on Sunday because <laughs> water <laughs> pressure came back, you know? And, um, because it was like, it was like everyone was camping for a week or something. And so, you know, yeah, I'm from yeah. Michigan, so we don't bat an eye to that type of weather. Originally, you know, I'm originally from Michigan, but the infrastructure, we're not built for that here, Texas, Louisiana. So, yeah. um, glad to hear y'all are well. Um, so, and, uh, I find it funny because, so Isaac's kind of, he's, he's really, um, uh, he, he's, uh, is it the word down? He's downgrading himself by being on this show. Cause when, if you were, if you are to go over to, to miserable offenders right now and just play any of their episodes, pretty high production, they got some like Tron music playing in the beginning. It's like some electronic, like awesome tune it puts you back in like a Tron movie or something and with a uh, narration and they play these video, these audio clips from like these English clerics talking about like the ethos of Anglicanism and you get on my show and you just hear a little, you know, little audio track. So we were, we were laughing about that earlier, but so we were very honored to have Isaac on our show. Yeah. And then, um, and that's, and that's all, that's all Jesse. Yeah. <laughs> He, and it's all Jesse, the tech man. The tech, is, the tech man. Yeah, I'm, and I'm glad he is because I don't, I don't want to do that stuff. <laughs> it's, uh, it takes some time to, to really, and I think COVID nineteen Corona has accelerated the pace of the church having having to. You know, podcasters are already ahead of the curve, but church is having to figure that out. 
you know, how do we do a video with this, with, of this quality? How do we do a recording of this quality? How do we put it out there? It's been an interesting couple of years, I guess to say for past couple of years on everything going on, how the church is adapting. So tonight's episode, um, <clears throat> I don't really have much of a, I usually have more of an outline or layout, but we had kind of just a, uh, not a simple topic. It isn't simple, but something just to kind of start it off and who knows where this conversation will go and flow. Uh, top five favorite theologians. Um, I got in touch with Isaac a couple, no, it's been a while ago. I don't know, six weeks ago. Yeah. Something like that. Something like that. Uh, and uh, to do a mashup episode uh, with miserable offenders. And we're going to have him discuss his five favorite theologians. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I would have, maybe I'll, I'll know of one or two of them, but <laughs> there's so many theologians. I'll get into that later. Uh, but my whole thoughts about like what constitutes a theologian, I had, a, I spent like two hours of reflecting on it. Like what is a theologian really? Is it like, you know, the usual names we hear. So yeah, but I'll give you that. Later. Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, uh, yeah, might want to go about this. Go ahead. Okay. Um, and you said you had, you had, you'd prepared a couple too, right? So we can I have, trade back and I forth. could only come up with three to be honest. <laughs> okay. I mean, I could come up. It was, it's a hard because, um, well, yeah, but it's hard. It's like, I was like, I, I could even have a list of like 50 and not know which ones to pick. Or I could like have, one or two it's a, the criteria we put it you know it's almost like when we read theology we almost like we read what resonates with us a lot and um, yeah it's just hard there's a lot of internal work with like putting that it's, it's not like top five favorite movies which i do have uh, but <laughs> it, it's just different you know because it's like you're talking about like uh you're talking about uh truth in a way i guess yeah just uh, people that really articulate uh, as well as a human can the things you have discerned and wrestled with in your heart throughout your walk in faith, if that makes sense. Um, Absolutely. Well, and, and you know, to that point, I, I very much, this list is very much kind of where I'm at as of now. Um, it's more of a snapshot than kind of yeah. a big picture because like you said, it can be, it, it's such a, it's, that's a very, it's, it could be easy to have 50 guys on there or only one or two. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, you'll, you'll be able to tell what I've been reading in the last year or so. Year or so, right. Um, shit, more than anything right? else, yeah. yeah. I mean, like three years Absolutely. ago, if you were to ask me, uh, I'd be like, oh, you know, probably two of them, I'd be like, yes, they've stuck with me. They're like, for life. And, the, and another one would have been like, ooh, cringe. Like, oh, mm -hmm. why would I have said that person was one of my favorite theologians? So, yeah, it's, you know. But go ahead, sir. Uh, All right. Do the let's do and if you have an order, fine. If you don't, hey, let's just go with the first one. Let's get into this. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm I'm going to take the the most weaselly Anglican liturgy thing ever with number one, and uh, and and go with Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop Cranmer. Yes. So, uh, um, th those of you all that don't know, Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury um, at the time of the English Reformation. He was uh, Henry VIII's Archbishop of Canterbury. He was the Archbishop also under Edward VI, and then he was executed by uh, Bloody Mary. 
um, for his dances. And he's the main architect of the Book of Common Prayer, which is why he gets number one. And I think, I think he would probably be number one um, even beyond that. But what's really changed for me is that I've gotten into over the last um, couple of years a bit more of his writings. Um, you know, this is the first Lent in about two or three years where my main devotion wasn't reading from the Book of Homilies. I went back to the Fathers this Lent, which which had been my previous go-to. Um, but yeah, he was the main writer for the first book of homilies, which which really kind of lays down these basics of justification by faith um, and those other kind of core Reformation issues. Mm-hmm. But um, I recently read through his tome on the Lord's Supper, um, the True and Catholic Doctrine of the Lord's Supper, which is a which is a not uncontroversial work. <laughs> Not so, uncontroversial. Um, so it's controversial. Yeah, it is controversial. <laughs> it is indeed controversial. Um, I, I think I think he kind of gets a bad rap for this one. So um, certainly anybody that is kind of of a more Anglo-Catholic persuasion, kind of a more high church persuasion, doesn't like the fact that it's a pretty reformed um, take on the Lord's Supper. Um, but at the same time, He's representing a kind of reformed sacramental theology that I think a lot of, oh, say, Presbyterians would kind of raise an eyebrow at as well. Um, it's it's there's there's a lot of nuance there. I mean, it's it's a good four hundred page work on the one sacrament. Um, he also gets a lot of flack, uh, and and this is this has happened from the time of writing. Um, he quotes extensively from the church fathers in supporting his ideas there. Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is he gets, he gets accused of, of cherry picking. And so I, as I was reading this, I was like, okay, I'm, I, I know the fathers a bit. I mean, it's such a huge corpus. How, how do you become a patric? I mean, if you don't have that PhD in patristics, you're probably not really a patristics expert. You know, right. the most the rest of us can do is kind of, um, you know, dip our toes, wade into the shallow end, you know, sure. because it's just such a huge corpus. Um, so I, I kind of threw it out there to some of some of some of my my uh, fellow clergymen. Okay, what's those of you all that know know the fathers really well, um, what do you think of Cranmer's take? And the best I could get was, well, I just don't agree with him. Okay, that's not the question I was asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, or I do agree with him. I was like, well, that wasn't really the question I was asking. And the conclusion I came to is um, kind of, you know, and again, I, I'm not a patristics expert. I read the fathers, but I'm by no means an expert. I, I think what's really going on is a to a certain extent everybody's going to cherry pick when it comes to the fathers because it's just such a huge corpus. Right. So um, when you talk about the consensus of the fathers, there's only a few things where you're going to find absolute consensus sure. on, yeah. or even kind of majority right. consensus on. Um, and the other thing I think, though, um, and this was this was really helpful reading his his treatise on the Lord's Supper, is that. Um, the question isn't so much, would the fathers be Cranmerian in their understanding? You know, would the, or would the fathers be more reformed or, um, you know, 
Reformation era Roman Catholic, late medieval Roman Catholic. The question really is, which one is is more faithful to what the fathers are saying? Right. You know, and and I kind of I kind of likened it to you know Augustine versus Pelagius. You know, Saint Paul was not an Augustinian, but I think we can definitively say Augustine was more faithful to Saint Paul than Pelagius was. <laughs> if you were you know, to that bring kind of uh, Paul back from the dead three hundred years later, and go, okay, Augustine and Pelagius are arguing. Who do you side with? Paul? Be like, eh, Augustine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, so anyway, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, just in terms of it was good to see Cranmer's Eucharistic theology from Cranmer's perspective, rather than what other people say his perspective was. Sure. You know, the, the idea that he was um, kind of, you know, a, um, a mere memorialist, you know, kind of Zwinglian. Yeah. It, it just doesn't show up in that text. Right. Yeah, he he was more, um, uh, yeah, he there was more, I don't want to say nuance, but there was, uh, from what I've read of Cranmer, and like you said, like, I'm not, um, I, whenever I encounter the writing, the patristic writings, I'm like, I should, whenever I encounter the patristic writings, my, my thought to myself is I need to read more of this. Like every, like, yeah, I like spend some time reading what some early church fathers said about, uh, sometimes it's like when doing a sermon prep and being like, okay, what did some of the early Christians say? I'm like, wow. Like, and I, and I, feel like, oh, I need to read more, but I never end up doing it. So I'm like you, I'm no expert on it either. Um, But, you know, these are very accessible works, like at least in English, you know, based, you know, decent English translations of the fathers are readily accessible through a very simple Google search, whether it's John Chrysostom or, you know, whoever. And a lot of their writings are commentaries on, on, scriptures and um and uh so yeah i think yeah they're speaking in a time different from cramner um Mm -hmm. like you say and like actually zach said in our last episode that reformers cramner during the english reformation and you could and and i and i put in there on the german side you saw luther melanchthon and, and and chemnitz very at pains to go through you know, the, the writings of the early church fathers and the, and the patristic authors to, um, you know, part of it was to justify their positions, but it was also just just to go back and, and to the, the idea of the undivided church. Right. And so I joked with Zach, I was like, yeah, I think I'm a 38 articles Anglican because, you know, (laughs) Cramner and Booster, they take all this nuance on the Eucharist, like between memorialism and, and, you know, uh, uh, transubstantiation, but Luther already saw, solved that for us. I'm a Lutheran on that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> um, I, yeah. I, I listen to a lot of Lutherans and I, I, I uh, there, there's a, there's a, some of the nuance in the, in that position. I, I mostly disagree with because my prayer book does, right. <laughs> you know, right. you know, rather than rather, but but oh, it's an elegant position. <laughs> it's yeah. a very elegant position. <laughs> well, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. I've read a lot on Luther's. Um, well, I'll get into the. He's actually one of the three. Spoiler: the people I have, but uh, <laughs> he his doctrine of the Eucharist was an interesting you know, via media. I don't know of mm-hmm. um, of that whole ref- 16th century debate. 
you know, so he argued against Rome. He argued against, in his mind, the fanatics. So, uh, mm-hmm. it's a, mm-hmm. uh, so Cramner, any more on Cramner you want to share? Um, you know, that's, that's really it. I mean, I think, mm-hmm. I think if folks want to get into really his thoughts, um, those, especially those first three or four homilies in the first book of homilies, the best place to start, I would mm-hmm. say. Um, and, and, and what we, what we see is that, um, that he's, he's, uh, just passionate about those basics of the gospel and he loves the fathers. Yeah. And that's great. And, and Zach on our last episode said that they recently like discovered like Cramner, like all these works on Cramner did on the sacrament, like just in the past, he said, Ashley Knoll was like, they brought in Ashley Knoll to pour over this stuff. Like they just, they just discovered this. Um, yeah, Noel is probably the the foremost Cranmer scholar right now. I've heard him um, some of his speeches on on, on Cranmer, and um, if if I remember right, Noel really thinks that Cranmer was probably one of the top patristics folks of his day. In terms of his library, it was certainly um, huge for the day, and he had copious notes. Um, in the margins and right. cross references, and so I mean, yeah, Noel, Noel certainly believes he was he was one of the top top Patricia scholars of his day. Yeah, it's interesting, and I'll have to read up more of of Noel. I haven't, um, I've known the 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 name, and I've seen him cited, and I think he's re- he's written like articles for. Um, not scholarly things, but just, you know, uh, mm-hmm. more general things that I've read. And so I'd, I'd be interested in reading more. All right, let's go to the next one. All right. Um, I'm, I'm going to advance a little bit in the, in the Anglican timeline. Again, you can see who I've been reading this year. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to go with uh, uh, John Jewell. So Bishop nice. Jewell. Yeah. And Jewell was basically the next generation um, after, after Cranmer. And if Cranmer was the main guy behind the first book of homilies, Jewel was the main guy behind the second book of homilies. And the second book of homilies is, there's a lot, it's a lot more kind of um, practical application focused, um, you know, a lot more topical rather than, than kind of generically theological than the first book. And uh, the, the only one I have real troubles with is, is the, um, the homily against idolatry, which is, a um you know for for lack of a better better term it's kind of a uh, iconoclast um diatribe and it's it's the three parts of that homily is about 200 pages which makes no sense to me <laughs> yeah so it's more like a like a like a yeah really long essay against uh against icons and images but the rest of it is i i find i find very edifying and uh, jewel was most was the main writer behind the second book but he's probably best known for his apology for the Church of England, where he's um, making the case that um, that in in reforming, he, the uh, they made the church more Catholic than it was before it was reformed. That in order to be truly Catholic, they had to be be reformed, mm-hmm. and that because of some of the innovations. Um, by by the by the Roman Catholics by the as, as he, they would say the Papists in those days, 
um, that they that that they had departed from actual Catholicity, um, and and he I, again he he's going to quote the fathers a lot, um, not as much as Cranmer Cranmer did, uh, but that's probably his best known work. I do know that the the Davenant Institute, um, who I'm a huge fan of their 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 publications and everything. They Great, do, yeah. They yeah they recently uh, published a new edition of Jules Apology. I haven't gotten it yet. That's 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 on my on my list of things to do in the next few months. Yeah. I think I had Hooker's um, the Reformed Catholic. There was something they put out on Hooker uh, that I bought. Oh, that's coming up. Believe me. <laughs> oh, that yeah, you, that's on your Amazon orders. Oh, that's coming oh, up. No, that's on that's on my list. Yeah, that's on my list. That's on your list. Uh, yeah, they're Devonet Devonet. I'm surprised I've not put them out. I um, will. I'll probably try to have someone from them on the show. Um, they're kind of in. I mean, they're as far as like good reformational texts. They are the house for that. Um, yeah. So um, check them out. They do commentary on that and videos on YouTube on that. They have a YouTube channel and they uh, they have a lot of that stuff. So. And the the other thing that I did recently read on Jewel was his treatise on the sacraments. Okay. Um, and, and again, you know, kind of Jewel's been sometimes accused of being um, anti-patristic in his approach, you know, kind of being more more reformed rather than um, realist. But um, in his actual writings, he he's, he's he takes a an interest some interesting nuance. Like, for example, in the um, the debate whether there's two sacraments or seven, he, he basically concludes, well, you could call these sacraments in a sense. They're just not of the same nature as the other two. Sure. Like he, he takes that, you know, kind of uh, two dominical sacraments and five sacraments of the church position um, way before it was kind of in vogue in, uh, you know, hundreds of years before. Oh, it was, it was in so in vogue. It, that was like a reformation, the, Reformation started that debate, but it's still yeah going yeah. since. But like the whole like concern over what the proper the number is wasn't so. I think I you'll have to okay. It was either from you or another podcast that talked about <laughs> how like you know initially, originally uh, the Lord's Supper and the baptism they referred to as holy mysteries. That's kind of what, like the Eastern Church still, mm, mm-hmm. and when you when you kind of frame it in that that way, you don't get into the debates of what constitutes a sacrament. Um, yeah, I, I thought it was an interesting thought, um, but I get what you're saying. Like, there's well, and, and sometimes the uh, Episcopalians and Anglicans have tried to make the, the the compromise. Well, there's two chief sacraments, five other sacramental rights, right? Um, right. You and know, Jules seems that, right? to be the, yeah, he, he seems to kind of throw a bone towards that position before kind of okay. we started trying to do that as, as our, you know, in, in Anglican and Episcopal circles, kind of as our, our main way of talking about it within the last, I don't know, hundred years. Yeah, he was, he was kind of putting the seeds for that. Just in that he was like, okay, I can grant in some sense these being sacramental. Sure. Um, they just aren't quite of the same nature. Uh, which I thought was very interesting because, you know, again, you, you think of the real almost almost nasty debates over the number. And I, I completely agree that it's not a very healthy debate. 
Um, you know, I, I, I usually tell, tell our folks here that really what we have is, is how are you defining your terms? You know, the reformers tended to define it very narrowly. You know, sacrament is um, not only is it an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace and the means by which um, God, God uh, grants us that grace, but it's also ordained by Christ and generally necessary to salvation. Okay, if you're going to narrow it like that, you, you can only really come to two. But, um, you know, the, the Roman Catholics just don't have as narrow of a definition. And to me, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I kind of was trained in a more Anglo-Catholic environment where some folks would really go to the mat over that number seven. And it just doesn't, that just doesn't make sense to me to, to, to you know, that's not a hill I'm worth, I think is worth dying I was, on. I was going to say the same lingo, it's not a hill I'm going to die on. <laughs> And I get that, you know, and um, all the the five other things that are considered sacramental rites or considered sacraments by whatever party in that very, in, in that debate, um, they're all good things. I mean, marriage, I mean, mm-hmm. all these things I do, you know, I anoint people. Um, what's crossing my mind is not whether it's a sacrament or not, but what's crossing my mind is that... Um, you know, I'm praying for the person and I, right. you know, so it's, it's, uh, and of course prayer is sacrament, right? That's a very, um, that was kind of a, I, I was reading like liturgical renewal, 20th century stuff, which a lot of it is stuff I don't like, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but, agreed, agreed, uh, agreed. <laughs> but prayer is, prayer is sacrament, especially when if churches have struggled with COVID and, Mm-hmm. you know, what can we offer as far as our corporate life together and worship and if it's strictly virtual or part virtual hybrid, you know, um, you, you know, it's like I, in the, at least in the early parts of it, when we didn't know anything about the virus, we were just on like, we were, it was, everything was just on a screen for like a month or two. I just remember that, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we discovered the strength of the daily office of doing morning and evening prayer, uh, with our parishioners who probably did, don't hear a lot of morning and evening prayer unless they do it on their own. Right. Right. For them. Right. But it's like, you know, we, every, the principal thing on Sundays, the Eucharist. And so it, there was a beauty in discovering the power of prayer again and prayer is sacrament. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. We, I kind of got off on a little thing there, but, um, you know, sacrament. There's some fluidity to, you know. I don't die on the hill, like you say. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that we was got pretty Thomas neat. I mean, I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I cut you off. Oh, oh no, no worries. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it turns out we had the tools to handle this sort of thing all along. We just hadn't been using them. We've had them for 500 years. We've had them for longer than that. They were just called other things. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you got Thomas Cramner, you got John Jewell, who's number three. Okay, going to move forward to uh, Richard Hooker. So one one generation up. Another and um, yeah, you mentioned um, uh, and so so Hooker Hooker was was during the time of Queen Elizabeth, and he was kind of um, the chief. Uh, really, really, what we know as Anglicanism today wouldn't be Anglicanism without Hooker. I mean, he's he's probably our most important theologian um, in terms of kind of working out what, what our theology looks like. And, and he really did it mostly through 
the um, multi-volume work, The Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity, mm-hmm. um, which, which is really tough to read in, in Hooker's own language. Uh, he, he, even for his time, he, he was tough to read. But, you know, you mentioned the Davenant Institute and, um, yeah, they've, they've been working out a modernization project of Hooker, um, which is, which has been excellent. And, uh, Bradford, uh, Dr. Bradford Littlejohn has been the main architect behind that project. And so currently they've got four volumes and then a kind of a one volume omnibus of the four that cover the preface um, in one book, which is funny that you need its own separate volume just for the preface. And then um, book one, then books two and three together, and then book four. Uh, I'm really looking forward to book five. That's, that's, that's one of my favorite parts of, of, uh, of, of Hooker. So I'm looking forward to what they do with book five. But um, if, if Jewel was trying to make a case for the Church of England vis-a-vis, you know, versus kind of Catholic opponents, um, Hooker was trying to do it against proto-Puritan mm-hmm. opponents. So they, they were, it wasn't quite full-fledged Puritanism yet, but you had the, you had the um, uh, seeds of it. And so re- really what we, what we see is that some of the folks that had left during Mary's um, bloody reign <laughs> and had gone to the continent <laughs> had um, kind of kind of gotten a little radical in, in their in their approach to the Reformation right. and stuff since then. That's what happens when they're it's, away when that when the cat's away, the mouse will play. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Oh goodness. Yeah, and so uh what what we get from Hooker, um there's there's all sorts of stuff we get from Hooker, but what really stands out to me is one, he has a such a very moderate approach to um those those ideas of the Reformation. He he is not a radical um, he's not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Um, you know, he, he makes this wonderful argument against kind of the regulative principle of worship. You know, this, this idea that if it's not explicitly permitted in the scriptures, it must be forbidden. And he says, okay, you, you, that, that's an absolutely absurd argument. You know, you, you know the scripture doesn't tell you what, what you're going to eat, what you're going to, you know, how you're going to dress. Um, but, but, you know, you're basically saying if all of life needs to be commanded by the scriptures, that's an impossible standard and and the scriptures themselves don't treat it that way, you know, when it comes especially when it comes to worship. So that, that was one area that I thought was pretty neat. And he really, he really fights for stability in the civil sphere. Um, you know, not using religious pretexts to, um, destabilize the the nation, destabilize the culture for the sake for the sake of destabilization. Right. And I think that's a really really helpful thing we could we could hear about today. And he had a he had kind of from the you know readings that secondary and primary from what I've gleaned from Richard or Richard Hooker, he had kind of a Platonic schema which um, it kind of lent himself to systematically put together something where the uh where there's a natural order and where there's Mm -hmm. a state where there's a church and um these both of these divinely instituted things um the reformers had ideas about two kingdoms uh hooker has two kingdoms but they're kind of like more complementary (laughs) than maybe the yeah the way luther and calvin put it but 
it's very genius, I think, for the time because it it, it was a, it was in part an apologetic for a Church of England, right? And for a Church of, like you said, that mm-hmm. was not going to break away from national religion, like the radical Puritans. Um, so it, it, I think you know, from the limited, you know, I've read. And I've read his kind of view on natural law and how the the downward emanation of how the natural law manifests itself into into the the societal and, and uh, governed life, and it's it's very fascinating. A genius that I have not read enough of that most Anglicans and Episcopalians have not read enough of, uh, but he he gets a lot of respect. I mean, he's kind of seen as the yeah, even from people who haven't read, for better or for worse, even from people who haven't read a lot of them, kind of go to him. They appeal to him with, you know, the well, people say the three-legged, the three-legged stool. stool. Yeah, which is kind yeah. of a myth. <laughs> so, well, he did have a, yeah. he did have, you know, in a way. <laughs> he, yeah, it's uh, it's it's more of either a big wheel or kind of a chain than a than a than a stool. <laughs> Right. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, that's it's it's kind of funny how that that keeps getting attributed to him, even though it's not quite what he said. <laughs> not quite what he said. Yeah. But he is such a. I mean, he's the closest thing in classical that classical Anglicanism came to to like a systematic theologian. Um, and I've said this mm-hmm. in the previous episodes. Anglicanism is not short of theologians by any means, but it was different than maybe the other reformational bodies during the Reformation right after, because they were, you know, they had people like John Donne, or they had people like John Jewell. They had all these, like, mm-hmm. uh, articulate, just people people that wrote, people that preached, people that were known, and they did theology, but it was like an extension of what, they, they weren't, like, seen as theologians, but it was an extension of what they were doing. Richard Hooker might be the exception, because he was a theologian intellectual of sorts and so yeah and i don't i don't recall much about his actual ministry ministry which yeah. which is now that i think about it, it's kind of kind of odd because yeah like it's all these other guys they're really kind of pastor scholars or you know pastor theologians and their theology flows out of their pastoral right um duties and i, I don't i don't know if that's the case for for hooker right that's interesting yeah i mean he he was t- i mean wasn't he trained in law probably before he uh I think that was, I think he was like trained in law, he, something. He was doing some yeah. secular, quote unquote, however that, whatever that meant. Yeah, and I, and I totally don't remember. <laughs> yeah, but he, he really, but he, nevertheless, he, he would, he served the church through his gifts and what a, yeah, what an example. And so, yeah, Richard Hooker's great. Going back to John Jewell, um, I did think that I kind of class, like, cause John Jewell wrote so beautifully. It's hard to put ourselves. We're going back to Isaac's second person who was very much forthright in his opposition to icons and images in the church as idolatry. But it's interesting because you, not just John Jewell, but all these classical Anglicans, the way they wrote, it was, it was just like, there's it's just so beautiful and like so there's so much imagery in what they say and write but they're against imagery 
<laughs> you know, it's just so, so like we, in our day and age, it's hard because we're not in those debates anymore. We're not in the yeah. debate. It's just, it's interesting to me. Yeah. And then there is even to something like, yeah, that, that homily on the peril of idolatry there, there's actually a beauty there, even as much as I find it a very frustrating read, um, within its context, it's, it makes a lot of sense within its context. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, kind of in our, in our, in our current context, it, it just seems hopelessly fighting over why, why, why are you spending so much time fighting over this particular thing? <laughs> yeah. So it's, 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 it's interesting. So we have Thomas Cramner, John Jewell, Richard Hooker. Who's number four. Okay. I'm going to go with somebody that's um, a, probably a little less known and that's um, James Usher. I've never heard of and, Okay, excellent. So, so Usher was the Archbishop of the Church of Ireland, the primate of, of, of the Church of Ireland, during um, the latter part of uh, James I's reign and the beginning of, of Charles I's reign. So that, that just before the, all the troubles over the English Civil War, um, he, was, he was the Church of Ireland uh, primate. And he's probably best known for, and this is kind of unfortunate, <laughs> but he's probably best known for kind of doing the math on the generations of, uh, and Genesis. And he's the one that really kind of gives us that 6,000 year younger. Um, oh, so he's the, he's the founder of YEC. Great. <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. Yes. <laughs> that's yes. cool. You know, and that's, that it's, it's so unfortunate because I, I my understanding of, of that particular work is that it was, it was kind of speculative anyway. And like, like he was just kind of doing it, doing something for fun. And it's really been latched onto, you know, almost like gospel truth. Although um, at the beginning of um, Neil Gaiman and uh, who co-authored that within Bad Omens, that, that novel, they make a really funny kind of poke, poking at um, Usher's math, um, basically saying that, uh, that the real creation was 15 minutes before that, or something like that. It was really funny, but um, but what 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 I really discovered of his that I that this is why that has nothing to do with why he's on my list because yeah that that that's like I said that's kind of unfortunate that he's best known for that, um, and he wouldn't be known for that in our circles either. I mean that's mostly among kind of you know Baptists and kind of more you know certain certain groups of of uh, of more Baptistic evangelicals in America, but. Um, what what um, I really enjoyed of his was a couple of essays on the episcopacy, mm-hmm. and again, this is something that I found from the Davenant Institute. I don't, I don't mean to sound like commercial for them. Hey, man! But um, commercialize. I mean, we can. <laughs> I want to call up Brad Littlejohn. He'd probably do an episode. You should. He should yeah, it. I bet you he would. I bet you he would. Um, yeah, so so they they put they put together a collection of of some of his sermons and treatises on ecclesiology called uh, James Usher and a Reformed Episcopal Church, um, but in particular his two essays on the episcopacy I just thought were absolutely fascinating. Um, so the uh, one of these essays is is the original of bishops and metropolitans. And this was from 1644. And he, he basically traces the roots of the episcopacy, um, rooting it in the old Testament, but also in certain um, really fun new Testament concepts. 
Um, you know, for, for example, um, he he postulates that the that in Revelation, the seven angels of those seven churches mm-hmm. were their bishops, mm-hmm. and he has some he, yes, you know that that and and um, he has a, a really neat argument for that that you know you really kind of have to read it to see, but. Um, I mean, because one of the things that most most scholars will agree on today, and this was certainly the case among the reformers as well, is that in the New Testament itself, that the terms for bishop and presbyter are really used interchangeably. I mean, right. they're they're not they're, they're, there's not really a distinction. You know, they're they're used synonymously in the New Testament itself. But um, nevertheless, we do see somebody like St. Timothy or St. Titus, who, who has authority beyond what, you know, he has a regional authority. Right. And so, um, yeah, so the original of, of bishops and, and metropolitans, he kind of goes through and, and uh, traces from um, both church history, as well as some Old Testament antecedents and makes, he, he basically paints a picture for what, the episcopacy was in the early days um and you know part of part of what what he what he says here is that um really it seems that the in in the very earliest days the uh the proto bishops really presided over a council of 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 presbyters so they weren't so much kind of a monarchical college that comes later but they were um, almost like what, what we would call, you know, in, 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 in our area, an archdeacon with a lot of extra power. <laughs> you know? and, and when did this guy, James Usher? Mm-hmm. James Usher. When, what, when did he live? Like what? Um, mid, mid, mid 17th century. Okay. So, so this essay is 1644. And so um, most of his sermons were either to King James or um, Charles the first. So um, he, and he, he did a lot of sermons in before the Royal court. You know, when I listen to that, I'm like, these are things that modern biblical studies 300 years later said, but like passed off as if <laughs> it was something. They, as if it was novel, like yeah. an insight they came to. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, to, for, for him to, and he probably did it so much more eloquently. In, well, he did, he did it in sermons. You're saying in writings, and just just to talk about how the the you know the, the how what the nature of what the senior leadership of bishops were like in one time period versus another. Um, that's really fascinating. Yeah, he he gets into some some fun nuances for how um, the Septuagint handles. Um, the, the priesthood and, and how that kind of gives seed for the way that the apostles would have seen the leadership structure as well. It's, it's very fascinating. It is. James and, yeah. So that, that was kind of his, his historic one. And, and, and a, yeah, probably that most, the most fascinating thing was his, um, his, his theory that the, yeah, the angels of revelation were not heavenly beings, angels, but it was, um, the representatives of those churches yeah. being the, the bishops and of those churches. That is ahead of its time because again, later moderns, I mean, I'm thinking of like Richard Balkham's great theology of the revelation 
book. Um, Revelation is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And Richard Balkin, there's a Lutheran named um, Louis Brighton. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think just the, his name, his last name was Boring. <laughs> I know he's not boring, but <laughs> and he wrote, I think it was the international commentary, that series. Uh, I got into reading revelation into reading all these commentaries on it. And they, and they basically had like a semi historicist view of revelation, which isn't historicist. Like it meant with like a hundred years ago and that there's different mm-hmm. senses of the word, but uh, how the imagery of the book of revelation did relate, didn't, wasn't exhausted in, but did relate to things going on at the time. And usually it's seen as like on the, the negative side, right? Like the beast and mm-hmm. these things were like, you know, the Roman empire, um, the, the, um, negative things Christians were facing the, the foes. Right. But, uh, to hear that, you know, that the seven angels were representations, symbols of the church leadership that, I mean, I haven't heard that before. Maybe one of those commentaries kind of drew that parallel. I don't know, but that's really fascinating. I'll have to check out some James Usher. Sounds like some good stuff. Yeah. His other, his other real, real neat essay from, from this particular volume anyway, uh, was from 16, 57, and that's the reduction of the episcopacy, and it's basically a um, proposal to the Church of England, Ireland, for um, kind of handling things in a way that's more consistent with um, what he saw anyway as, as the biblical pattern. And, um, you know, because it's, you know, in those days, you know, if, if today the bishop is unfortunately functions like a CEO too often, in those days, the bishops functioned like like nobility. I mean, they were they were the they they were you know like any other lord in a lot of the way they function. And um, so he 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 basically um, proposes that um, they use suffragans, suffragan bishops, or what we would call suffragans in the United States anyway. Um, they might call them area bishops. I think in England nowadays, okay. to to make sure that there is a bishop in every single city that is functioning there with the priests, you know, on the ground, doing things with the priests, um, that they're meeting in, in convocation um, at least once a year to handle discipline, controversies, you know, whatever, um, with their suffragans, but also then in a bigger one with the whole diocese. And um, it just seemed like a really neat proposal in light of, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know any bishop that um, isn't super frustrated by the amount of meetings he has to go to. Oh, I would. I mean, be, it's just it's 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 like a, being on the on the board. You know. Oh, I would be like so, and like it seems like, and it seems like for like, in one sense, oh, easy. It's like you're not like on the ground doing the heavy lifting. You're just in meetings, but that can be so mind numbing. You know, like how, yeah. how much of I, the idea factory can you, you know, have before, you know, it, it, I'm sure like Bishop struggle people in, I mean, in any, in any vocation where they're just, you know, they're considered the, the movers and shakers of whatever, and they have to get together with other people. And it, it's, it's gotta be, it's gotta be a struggle. I mean, 
everyone has their mm-hmm. own struggle. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and then I, I've heard, I, I was told by, by a, a, a fellow who, who he's now a continuum bishop, but he was, he grew up in, in the church of England that um, Usher's ideas are very, very Irish and kind of come from the uh, very rural nature of the Irish church versus the English church and yeah. some of that monastic background that is just in the DNA of sure. Irish Christianity. But, uh, but yeah, I, 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 I really enjoyed those. And uh, um, it gave me a lot of things to chew on with ecclesiology that I hadn't really thought yeah. about before. Ecclesiology, that's the word for it. Cause that over the other three, he really, uh, he seemed uh, particularly interested in that. Um, let's go to number five. Okay, so I'm going to depart from my pattern and um, bring somebody who's not only still alive but also not an Anglican. Oh. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, I'm interested. This is going to be, yeah, um, uh, Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, um, who's ah. better known nowadays as. Yeah, Pope Emeritus Benedict the Sixteenth. Um, oh, a couple decades ago, he he wrote the Spirit of the Liturgy, mm-hmm. and um, this was given to me um, as a gift. This as uh, one of um, our. Uh, I, I kind of jokingly say he, he he's my Padawan here here at the, at the parish. Just just got ordained as a deacon when when uh, when I when I did the officiated at his wedding. Um, he, he, he gave me this as a gift, the spirit of liturgy, but, um, yeah, uh, Pope Benedict, uh, Cardinal Ratzinger goes through, um, just traces, uh, some of the historical developments of the Western liturgy, but he also kind of touches on, um, its implications in regular life. Like, like one part that really stands out to me, he, he says, okay, so, you know, the imagery of Easter with uh, the spring imagery and the imagery of Christmas, that, that winter imagery doesn't really work in the Southern hemisphere, mm-hmm. you know, because the seasons are reversed in the Southern hemisphere. And so he says, um, you know, we, we might be tempted to want to um, change the imagery or change the calendar. If you're in the South, he says, but um, you know, one of the things that the liturgy does is it roots us in time and place you know, the idea that these things really happened. Um, and so divorcing it from um, its, 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 its geographical context, which is in the Northern Hemisphere, would be to, to, to ruin, um, ruin the liturgy in that, in that sort of way. And he, he also has a really great, you know, kind of going back to that iconoclasm thing, he has a, a, really, a really neat discussion about the Seventh Ecumenical Council which um, was the council that ruled against iconoclasm in the 8th century. And the Seventh Ecumenical Council has a real um, mixed reception in the West. It's not just a reformers thing. Uh, But even at the time, uh, a bunch of the, a good chunk of the West didn't receive it. And there's a lot of weird historical reasons for that. Some bad translations, um, you know, Charlemagne's grab grabs for power were part of that. I mean, it's, it's a real fascinating history. Um, but, um, you know, he, 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 he talks about how, you know, not, as, as a Western church, not only do we have to kind of wrestle with the fact that um, we had issues with this once upon a time, 
but also what does it mean that we have received it, you know, as ecumenical, mm-hmm. but, you know, and, um, and I, I thought it was, it was, a, it was a, a really just beautiful approach to the liturgy. And the other thing that I really appreciated was that he, he does, he recognizes um, the value of Protestantism and the Eastern Orthodox churches in this book. And he, he's not, um, yeah, he, he's not, he's not, not kind of Roman centric, um, even though he's writing to, to fellow Catholics and from the perspective of a Catholic, he, he recognizes um, the liturgical contributions of the entire church. And so it's just a real beautiful, um, I think that's the real thing about it was it was just a beautiful approach to the liturgy. And, you know, as that's, that's kind of my, my, my main gig in the diocese is, um, is, is liturgics. Um, It was a real, real helpful read for me. Ransing, well, Ransing, he's such, I mean, I think he's one of the greatest living. I would agree. I think he's one of the greatest uh, theologians. Um, It's funny how the press took him and twisted him to be this one thing. And also how they take Francis and twist him into being another thing. And there was like some quiz I took online. It was like a guess who said it, uh, Benedict or Benedict 16th or Francis. <laughs> and like, it was really hard. Like I did pretty okay on it, but ha- I mean, that was like, but yeah, it would have been like very hard because there were so many like things that, you know, that the press would take from Francis and, and put out all out there. They would ignore about Bay. So it's like and and I think that's just kind of part of the North American media, not getting the rest of the world, too. Um, but yeah, Ratzinger was a very uh, and it's interesting because he was not um, he was ecumenical in a certain sense. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that he wasn't um an ultramontanist i don't think um yeah uh, uh, he's the one that uh, that that uh instituted um the ordinariate for for anglicans that right. wanted to get into communi- communion and you know i i was a, a very relatively new return to my anglican roots at the time but you know i have to say it, it was tempting um <laughs> you know and, and just in that it it, it was such a generous um, ecumenical move it, it, within Rome's ecclesiology, and you know and that that um, that siren call of institutional unity is is uh, it's 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 pretty sweet. But you know, had too many theological objections. <laughs> yeah, same here. I, I have a lot of theological objections, but I do. I consider my Roman brothers and sisters fellow Christians. Um, Absolutely, and. Uh, I knew, I knew, a, I knew a Lutheran pastor who wrote a Christmas card to Pope Benedict every year during his papacy in German because he knew German. He wrote a Christmas card in German. It was and like one, and one year came and he got a response, not from Pope Benedict, from but from Pope Benedict's. Um, secretary or something <laughs> in German saying the Pope has received your and appreciates it or something like that made his day. That's pretty neat. He's a big Ratzinger fan as a, as a Lutheran, a very Germanic one. 
Um, I haven't read it yet, but I, I really need to get a hold of his um, his volumes on on the life of Christ. Um, yeah, I uh, gosh, did I? Yeah, he he did several books on on that. I heard they were very well done for like yeah, they were in part scholarly, but also um, just an up to date, comprehensive uh, you know read of the life of Jesus. It reminded me kind of of what um, Alfred Edersheim did back in the 19th century with his Life of Times of Jesus the Messiah. And it seems like it was kind of, you know, because really Edersheim had been kind of the definitive volume on that. Mm-hmm. But I think Ratzinger's actually surpassed him. I don't, and I'm you not know, the, the Pope's When I think of the Oh, my goodness, century, that's a great book. Is I should read, when I think of 19th century lives of Jesus, I think of the first quest and all that. <laughs> all the romanticized uh yeah which we need yeah, to do was interesting because he was yeah he was a um he had been a rabbi or he'd been trained rabbinically he was he was jewish but he can he became a christian and he actually was a was a church of england uh minister um okay. but his 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 main life work was um yeah two big volumes on kind of on the life of christ um really kind of contextualizing uh, within first century Jewish, Israel, you know, Palestinian, Israeli culture. It's, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But I think some of the scholarship has not held up, um, you know, because it was sure, 19th but century. It, the point that, he, you know, that he's, he's painting the Jewish-Palestinian backdrop, that predates scholarship that started to get into that later 20th century. You know, it's a... Yeah. I've never... Yeah, um, I'll have to... I'll have to take a look at that. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. Your top five. So we had Thomas Cramner, John Jewell, Richard Hooker, James Usher, Joseph Ratzinger. Good list. Yeah. And uh, next year it'll be completely different. Next year it'll be completely <laughs> different. Um, and now where are we at for time? I only, I didn't have a top five. <laughs> so. Well, give us what you got. Give us what you got. I got three. I got, Augustine of Hippa, Martin Luther and Karl Barth. Those are my three. Um, I, again, it was hard. So my, my question was like, so what is a theologian? That was like, I had like mm-hmm. a whole like crisis over this. What's a theologian? It wasn't a crisis. It was just like a over pondering of it. You know, what constitutes a theologian? Is it someone with a PhD in theology? Is it someone, um, you know, cause if you go to the pre-modern era, being a theologian was not credential based. Uh, right. It wasn't someone who had a PhD in systematic theolo- theology from Oxford or, you know, um, but it, of course, if you go to the modern era, are all theologians PhDs? No, I, you could say, did John Stott have a PhD? I don't know. I mean, like you could say like he wrote a lot yeah. of popular works, you know, Billy Graham, you know? Uh, so, uh, so, I was kind of quite like, what is a theologian? Um, what about great Christian writers? Like I said, in the modern era, that don't have a PhD. Uh, do people in the Bible count as theologians? Like a <laughs> theologian. I mean, he lays out the groundwork from where the three people I just named built what they did. Um, so I'll admit I'm overthinking this in one sense, but I, it does kind of fascinate me. Um, because I've read a lot of people, including a lot of scholars. Um, and I've read a lot of scholars of theologians, like people that are, they're not household names, but they wrote secondary works 
on like maybe some household names like Luther and Bart. And so, and they're known in their academic circles, whatnot. Um, so it was kind of hard, but, but I think I came to three. Augustine, uh, I think he's influential, uh, obviously. And he is the one guy yeah. that Roman Catholics, Lutherans, and Calvinists or Reformed all see as their guy, which is very odd because um, it's not like, you know, it's not like we're talking about like hardcore right-winged Trump people and a hardcore left-wing AOC people. They all like the same pizza. This isn't like, <laughs> this isn't the same type of thing. Like it's, you know, they literally see like him as the prism through which all their understanding has like shown through. Right. And, but they're so diametrically like opposed in so many ways. So because Augustine can be that it's just that in itself is amazing. Um, He's a genius writer. Uh, I have like several electronically, just all his works electronically. I have not, nearly read all of them but um his pelagius debates for instance were great um uh so uh and also there's a good secondary work on him it's by a catholic writer and it was called the christian transformation of political philosophy and i meant to take some notes on that book but and i'll put a show note uh i'll refer you to the title if any if listeners are interested uh, or if isaac here is interested but it talked about um his kind of development of what you would later see with luther and the reformers of natural law and two kingdoms you know that god instituted something you know that there's a law built into creation um but in Augustine's view, the church also is so, so the government has a role in that in enforcing uh, order. And the church has a role in that in the proclamation of the gospel. And it's a very proto form of like law and gospel. Um, I can do a plug in two episodes ago. Ben, Ben Madison did an awesome episode on that. So yeah, long gospel. If you want the breakdown of that, go to that episode. Uh, so, uh, so I, I appreciate him for the influence he had. Um, and his personal story, a lot of us can relate. We have all been, we are all sinners. God calls the sinful. He doesn't call the sinful to stay in sin, but he calls the sinful. Um, and a lot of people in the Bible, Paul, David, all echo that. So Augustine is number one. Um, next is Luther. I already gave the spoiler for that. That won't be a surprise for anyone I know. But Luther, um, when I was in my second year of, sorry, it was in the second half of my first year of seminary. Um, Martin Luther, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but I'll, I'll just say it. Martin Luther brought me back to orthodoxy. Uh, in the Christian church. Mm. And my thing just said internet unstable. Am I coming through okay still, Isaac? I think so. Okay, good. Uh, <laughs> sometimes it does. I'm like, okay, it started to rain here. No, we don't, we don't have that nice, <laughs> we don't have that nice background noise of, of people in the pub hanging out. Is that, what's your background noise in miserable offenders? Mm. It's like people like, um, 
yeah, I, I think I think um, I think it's a it's something that Jesse found that was was to kind of sound like um, yeah, like 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 we were just hanging out in a in, know, a, in a cafe or something. All like the that. commoners, this is pretty and cool. The little uh, white horse inn over here. Um, yeah, it's like a perfect. It's like a great feel. Um, I don't have that, but we do have rain tonight, so we might have a tranquil rain sound to our podcast. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Every now and again, when I, you know, before COVID, I'd go to one of our, our good local cafes rather than, you know, kind of some big, big brand and there'd be somebody doing their podcast right there. I was like, that's wonderful. That's the way it ought to be. That is all. Yeah. Have the background noise and all. I mean, we have plenty of background. I've had my dog bark in this previous episodes. My, my cat's never come through, but yeah. Um, oh, back to Luther. So my second year of seminary, I, we had, we were, in my, I was in my church history class and we had to, we were in like the early modern, late medieval period, basically the Reformation Renaissance period. And we had to pick a primary writing from a church figure of that time to do a reflection paper on. And I decided uh, to do it on Luther. I mean, I was raised Missouri Synod Lutheran, but I became Episcopalian at 13, never really like look back on Luther for any like reason. Uh, but that was, you know, what I decided to read some Luther again for the first time in a while and reading that kind of changed my life. Uh, it made me realize that, um, I'm a sinner that, um, the church is called to do things in the world and to, um, address things in the world and all that stuff. Uh, but also the church is made up of sinners and I am a sinner and original sin is a real thing. And, but yet I cling to the hope of Christ on the cross uh, who saves me from what sin can do to me. And so Luther changed my life. Um, even though I was raised Lutheran, he changed my life later. <laughs> so, Oh, and I recently funny how that works. It is funny how that works. And I recently read, and I'm such a bad Luther file. I and I've read excerpts from it, but I finally read Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And he debates mm. someone in that. Oh, my book is he's debating someone, I can't think of the name, over uh communion being ex- available in both kinds to the laity. Because for our listeners, you know, historical note, many people even know this still, that during the medieval era, the Eucharist was only given in one kind. And Luther, in his defense that Eucharist is to be given in both kinds, he debated with this other guy. And this other guy pulled a passage from John about, well, uh, Jesus uh, talks about um, that he is the bread, he doesn't talk about himself as the cup. And Luther said, well, if you read a few verses later, he talks about whoever eats from this and drinks from this. <laughs> it was like, it was such a comical, <laughs> like, like this, this guy was like such, he just, he picked out one verse and Luther's like, okay, we'll read a couple verses later. And then he called him a vile smelling toilet. I don't know what it was in German, but the English translation is, he referred to him as a vile smelling toilet. And I laughed out loud. My wife looked at me and I'm like, yes, I'm reading some 500 year old thing. And I'm laughing. <laughs> so, 
there used to be a website that was like um, a Luther insult generator that would randomly put out. Yes. Yes. That was so funny. So good. We're going to post a link to, I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes as well. The Luther. (laughs) Uh, And finally I'll, and I'll spend the most time uh, on Bart. Um, So Carl Bart, he's such a, I felt almost like, not cliche, what's the word? Just like, okay, that's everyone's favorite. He's such a household name as far as theologians. If anyone knows a famous theologian of the past hundred years, Karl Marx up there. Um, he's always rated as like the best theologian. And, and I don't agree with Bart on everything. Um, mm-hmm. There's There are things that I won't get into in this episode that I have significant dif- disagreement with. But I took a class on Bart um, a couple years ago. At, at ILT where I do my doctoral stuff. And there were like, I, I was just fascinated by kind of his life story. What really fascinated me with, with him was his, both his, both his continuity with and his break from the 19th century and early 20th century liberal theology of Germany, because mm-hmm. he was totally formed and shaped in that. Um, and then uh, it was a theology that very much it got to the point of thinking of God as an idea and as an idea mm. that supports and complements like German uh, culture of the time, German bourgeois culture of the time. I'm simplifying things because there's so much going on. There's so many currents, but mm-hmm. that, he, he saw that tendency. And, and when World War, World War One breaks out, he sees... Um, very problematic war he sees, but he sees that all of his former professors from all the big universities he went to, he went to all the big ones. He like transferred around and he went to like basically every major like German divinity school and university. And he saw that all of his former mentors and professors like signed on to going to war. And so that disillusioned him, but he was already starting to kind of see through uh, through them. So he writes epistle to the Romans. Well, Paul wrote epistle to the Romans. I'm sorry, but Bart wrote a commentary famously <laughs> in 1916. He revised it a couple times and, um, he, uh, it was, it, it was there where he started to come in confrontation with some of these big German theologians before him, uh, that were still around. And, uh, and, uh, he, came in conflict with Adolf von Harnack. And um, he saw the issue with what he, what was, uh, he called experience theology. People kind of based things on their experience. Experience was started to become, your experience started to become kind of a norm and a source of Christian uh, belief. And, um, but then he also uh, he he also started to criticize historical criticism, and he mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't reject historical criticism; he accepted a lot of it. Uh, and this is a quote he said in a debate he had with Adolf von Harnack. He said, "What I must defend myself against is not historical criticism, but rather the foregone conclusiveness with which, and this is characteristic also of present statements, the task of theology is emptied. That is to say." the way in which the so-called simple gospel, quote-unquote, discovered by historical criticism beyond the scriptures and apart from the spirit 
is given the place which the reformers accorded to the word or the correlation of spirit and scripture. Such a gospel can be called God's word only metaphorically because it is at best a human impression uh, of it. And um, he, he noted how also how historical criticism, um, it was very much just a collection of different uh Philological and uh, archaeo- like the the commentaries of his time, he said weren't even really commentaries. It was mm-hmm. all in these like trying to get in these fine details of language and historical and cultural setting, but it really said nothing to what the word of God was being spoken through the scripture. And so he <laughs> he was he, in a sense he was kind of restoring the Reformation in a way to the liberal theology of the day. So. Um, I can respect Bart for that. And one more thing on Bart, he, uh, he, his teacher, Wilhelm Hermann, who he, Boltmann, and a few other big names studied under, and Hermann was kind of late 1800s German scholar. Um, and was, uh, and he always kind of like respected him and, and saw him, um, uh, spoke of him endearingly as like, uh, and there were some things that he kind of took from him. Um, but there, he also, he, he disagreed with Hermann's concept of revelation because Hermann had a concept of revelation that was, had like an objective feature and a subjective feature. Um, hmm. Hermann said that in revelation, there is something being affected within the human from the power powerful personality of Christ, which comes to him or her, that Christ's power will shine through whatever imperfect human articulations of faith that there are. Now this goes back to, you know, Schleiermacher said that all language, religious mm-hmm. language, just like trying to get to, you know, and, but in, there's some ancient, I mean, Augustine said that, look, you know, we can only speak of God in analogy, but that's valid because God gave us that way to do it. So at least with Augustine, there's kind of a validity. Schleiermacher meant well, I believe in that sense, but I think uh, could easily devolve into a type of uh, relativism. And so anyways, uh, Bart believe or Hermann, going back to Hermann, uh, that uh, this personality of jesus shines through these imperfect articulations of faith the personality of jesus powerfully presses upon us and this happens through the gospel story right and herman sells herman says help lies for each of us not in what we make of the story but in what the contents of the story make for us it's like an inner reality that jesus impresses upon us so that's the subjective part the objective part herman talked about was only he, well, that might have been the objective part, the pressing of <laughs> the subjective part is Herman <laughs> says, only he who yearns after an honest fullness for his own inner life can perceive the strength and fullness of the soul of Jesus. So there's this kind of two part, this meeting point where our desire and what the gospel um, impresses upon us, even though the gospel is an imperfect writing and may not even be historically accurate. Hermann even went at lengths to say that. But Bart uh, kind of saw right through that. Um, and he said there could only be a clarity 
only if the action, the twofold action is apparent, but not actual. If it is human, it is human action only in a secondary sense that if that light shining from behind that penetrating insight, uh, is it has to come from the single act of Christ. And he's showing there, Bart's basically showing that the contrast between their concepts of revelation for Bart, there's always the acting subjects. um, And any human action simultaneously goes along with it, but it is all still utterly dependent on God's action, which kind of sets the entire orchestration of it all. So, I went really deep with that. I was kind of quoting from stuff I've wrote and <laughs> written before, but that was, um, that was, that was when I realized. Um, and if you know, I had a hard time reading that for the first time since I processed and wrote it a couple of years ago, I mean, listeners uh, go back and listen to that segment a couple of times. It'll sink in, trust me. Uh, but, but for me, when I originally read the, that original quote from him, that, uh, that made me realize his genius, his theological genius and being able to, um, to be able to see through this facade that so much cultural and intellectual, uh, uh, theology had, had the, the, that path that had, it, it had taken. And so those are my three, uh, Art Luther and Augustine. I have more, um, in my head, I just don't know how to place them or <laughs> rank them or what, but, um, thanks for bearing with me on that last part. Well, and at, at the risk of completely discrediting myself, um, I, I have not read Bart. So, um, this, this is my, 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 that's a big uh, kind of blank spot in, in my own education. So uh, that, that I found that all very fascinating. Bart was a blank spot for me too. until I took that class, um, he's heavy. He's heavy. He's written so much, and he, his 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 biggest set of works are his volumes of of. Uh, it's not called Christian dogmatics. I feel like a lot of people wrote where uh, it's yeah, it's his dogmatics. Um, you know, it, it's he has a fascinating story. He has fascinating, um, you know, uh, turning points in his life that led him to to where. Uh, reading St. Anselm in like 1930, 31 really led him back into reading not only the Protestant Orthodox classics, but also the early patristics and having a a view of doctrine that he would have not, he was more of a, he had more of a dialectical take before maybe arguably you could say uh, he had more of a, you know, doctrine is good language, but it's all approximate language, you know, but once he, he read Anselm, it kind of took him down a direction of taking past voices and is more seriously. Um, and that helped him because early on he had a disillusionment with the people of his day, mm-hmm. you know, so it's just, it, it, his life story makes so much. And I agree, again, I don't agree with him on all, on everything, um, you know, and so, but yeah, that's, I guess those are my three. <laughs> so this is Excellent. a good episode. This is a kind of a long episode. I'm thinking, were we about an hour and 20? It may not be our longest. My yeah, longest it feels, feels about like that. My longest episode was, was with my Pentecostal friend, but Pentecostal stuff is always <laughs> So <laughs> that's, a, that's the nature. Get caught up, get caught up by the spirit. <laughs> caught up by the spirit. We were. 
and we were we were drinking whiskey too so it made a really long episode uh so but it's all good and i isaac i thank you for this this has been great i'm glad we i got to know you i mean i've followed you at the podcast miserable offenders and i listened to you on there and the other guys and but to, to get to know you and just have a good chat this has been great and a lot of fun thank god you very much you. for inviting me on you god bless god bless you, you too in your ministry in in texas and uh, i'll have to pay a visit sometime we're not far from each other yeah that'd be uh, wonderful yes god bless you and we will uh and you're welcome back anytime we'll have you on again excellent that'd be great all righty have a good night you yeah. too Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doff Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.